Hello, and welcome to class session number 15, as we speed down the homestretch of the Silmarillion. Today we spend some more time on Turin Turambar, and then haste our way through the ruin of Doriath and the fall of Gondolin. I should probably give a brief explanation for a few references and inside jokes in today's class. In the discussion of Turin, I take a moment to reference the excellent argument on Turin being made by my student, Alison Fishbach, who is currently writing her senior English thesis on death and immortality in Tolkien's world. That is the Allison I'm referring to at that point in the lecture. Later, I will make a snide remark about Balrogs plummeting to their deaths, a joke which my students obviously get. If you have listened to my earlier podcasts, you will know that I have already weighed in on the legendary internet debate about Balrogs, and you will know further, as my students certainly do, that I am very firmly in the no-wings camp. Finally, when we get to discussing the trend of evil forces coming to attack during a time of festival, students start laughing and making many jokes in the background. As it happened, this class was recorded the day before the biggest party and celebration of the year on our campus, so the opportunities for humor were very ready to hand. My favorite joke was the one made by my future thesis student and current sound editor, Mac Boyle, who revealed that he had already been planning to knock down all the lamps on campus while everyone else was distracted at the ball. Anyway... On to class. Okay. So we have... Yeah, yeah. Okay. Turin Turambar. I'm, I'm determined to get to Eorendil today, so we'll see what happens there. Um, as we talked about last time, fate, free will, the, the curse of Morgoth, his own choices. I asked you to think about this. What do you think? Any patterns that you see? Any thoughts that you've had about this? Yeah, Jordan? Um, my uh, view on this, as I've expressed on the discussion board, is that Turin used the curse as an excuse for his own folly. He would say, well, I'm going to do this. Oh, look, it went wrong. That's the curse's fault. <laughs> he certainly does more often think about the curse when things go badly than about his own choice. Tra- he certainly spends more time lamenting the curse of Morgoth than smacking himself on the forehead. So, I mean, I, 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 I do agree with that. Um, even when, even after the times which seem most obviously to merit a smack on the forehead, um, nevertheless, still, he rarely does that. Um, and I think, so, I, now, I, I don't think it's quite fair to say, I mean, as I said last time, and I, and I still hold, I don't think we can or I don't think we should, talk ourselves into a complete 100%, 0% view of the situation. Morgoth's curse clearly applies, even, when it, even though it has, in many places, a, a, an active agent, right, that is Glaurun. Um, and so, you know, to say, oh, well, it's not the curse of Morgoth, it's Glaurung act, acting, well, what's the difference? Glaurung is the instrument of, of Morgoth's curse there. Um, I mean, think of what happens with with Neonor, for instance, and you know her 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 loss of memory. That was the malice of Glaurung. He could have just, you know, killed her. Um, <laughs> that moment when she's on the on the the hilltop in the mist and the mist parts, and she turns around and there's Glaurung's head sitting on the top of the hill, staring her, staring into her eyes. He knows what he's doing, just as he knew what he was doing when he deceived. Turin into going back up to Dor Loman, right? Um, both sending him away from where his family really is in Doriath, and also uh, 
of course, preventing him from doing what is implied could potentially have actually brought about a positive result, namely to rescue Finduilas, who is rescuable. She doesn't get killed until the orcs take her all the way to Brethil. So you got to think, had, had, had Turin decided to pull a bell egg there and be like, I'm pursuing the orcs with their prisoners on foot doggedly no matter what, he, like Belleg, could have caught up with them before they got away. I mean, that... that they were many, many days' journey away before they finally nail Finduilas to a tree with a spear, right? So it seems that she was savable. It's explicit that Glaurung is trying to prevent that, um, which, again, leads one to suspect that it would have been a good thing and might have had po- a positive impact. Um, yeah, Chantel? There, there are also um, things even unrelated to Glaurung in his life that are negative that are also out of his hands, like when he kills... Yes, good, good. And I think that's an important thing to remember, that uh, the killing of Beleg is uh, one of the most horrible events uh, in all of Turin's life. I mean, I, I rate that above, in you know, sheer horror and tragedy, I rate that above his incest with his sister. That was terrible. Um, but you're right, it's also one of the things that he is sort of most blameless for. Very understand. I mean, there, you know, he wakes up. Remember what was happening when he fell asleep, right? When, 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 when he fell asleep, he was tied to a tree and they were throwing knives at him, right? And then he wakes up and there's somebody standing over him with a sword. I mean, it's not a... It's very understandable what happens. But you're right. It, we can say from Turin's perspective, ah, you see his fate working against him, but it was also Beleg's free choice. Beleg took the sword after being warned by Melian that this is not this sword is not safe. Um, that an evil that uh, this there's there is there's malice in this sword, she says. Um, and he's like, it's okay, nevertheless I will take it. And so he accepts. So I, I, that's a very important reminder, but of course that again, there we see not just Turin being independently responsible for his actions or for all of his actions, but we see how the free choices of many are woven together to create this picture, and that's kind of a definition of fate, isn't it? So I agree. I I, I think that that's a good point. Even the meeting with Neonor? I mean, okay, Glaurung orchestrates it in one sense, that is in that he sets Neonor running loose in the woods of Brethil, he doesn't strip her naked, but he, you know, drives her crazy and gives her amnesia. Um, but it, it wasn't Glaurung who arranged for Turin to happen by as she was lying. Where is she lying? Yeah, she's on the gravesite of Finduilas. Yeah. Um, that seems to be fate, right? That it happened to be Turin who found her there. I, I, how long would she have lasted? <laughs> I mean, if he hadn't come by then, she probably would have died, right? So some of that is clearly outside of Glaurung's hands um, and yet works out and works out for the tragic worst, it would seem. So, you know, in some of these things, I think it's perfectly appropriate to point to them and say, we see here, in some sense, fate conspiring against him. We can see what it seems we are at least permitted to understand, is the, 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 the curse of Morgoth working out. He is 
great enough to do that kind of thing. There's no reason to think that his curse could not have this kind of effect. Because remember, his... It's not just that in the conversation with Hurin, he's like, from now on, everything is going to be horrible. Tragedies like this are woven into the music from the beginning because of the discord that Melkor introduced into the music. Think of the impact that Melkor had on the music which, upon which the vision and then the history of the world has been based. His plans, his machinations for evil are, are worked into it from the beginning. So... Why should we think that he can't affect the kind of curse that he tells Hurin he can affect? But of course, I mean, but I don't want to underemphasize, because I agree with very much, the willfulness of Turin and the large number of really quite terrible mistakes that he makes, and not just mistakes, um, but really bad choices, conscious, deliberate, bad choices. What motivates them? Please keep in mind, I am not asking... For a tragic flaw, uh, the phrase tragic flaw is one of several phrases I would eliminate from the whole sphere of English classes and literary analysis if I could. Uh, It is a misleading concept which almost always leads to oversimplification. Um, Based upon, by the way, a complete mistranslation of a passage from Aristotle. Um, Aristotle in his his, uh, tragedy doesn't talk about... uh, a tragic flaw. The, the Greek word that Aristotle uses to describe that thing that tragic heroes have is hamartia, which means uh, uh, error in judgment, mistake. Like somebody does something they knew they weren't supposed to do and smacks themselves on the head and like, oh man, that was a hamartia. I'm going to regret that. Oedipus's hamartia, you know, he, he has several. One of Oedipus's great hamartia is, is killing his dad at the crossroads. That was, that was, that was an error. In judgment, he really shouldn't have done that in retrospect, right? Um, so, anyway, so I'm not looking for tragic flaws. It is, it, 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 human beings are a little more complicated than that, and so are most characters. Um, but we can see some patterns in the bad choices that he makes, right? How does Turin tend to go wrong? Eve? I mean, the big one that comes to mind is um, with Glaurung. Glaurung, yeah. Okay, the dragon where he just he can't seem to snap out of it enough, so he listens, and then this seems to happen a lot, where he'll get some bit of information and then be like, oh, well, obviously I need to do this, and just go dashing off. It's like he doesn't stop to think about it, which is also how, like, the bridge fell, and then... yeah. Good. Take the take the his listening to Glaurung. Now, I mean, on, on the one hand, Glaurung Glaurung is who he is. Glaurung is really powerful. Glaurung, you know, deceives him, and you know that the, the dragon spell is upon Turin in that moment. So, a, a big percentage of his, the actions that he does when convinced by Glaurung is not exact. He is being operated on by Glaurung. It's not exactly his fault. But I agree, Glaurung, in deceiving him the way that he is doing and saying what he's saying is playing on Turin's weakness there. What weakness is Glaurung playing on? Well, let's back up a step further. What does Glaurung say to him? He's talking about his mom. Yeah. What does he say? Yeah. What about his mom? I'd almost say that he can't 
can't figure out who he cares about most, or he's, he can't care, figure out what he cares about most in that situation, and thus goes for the wrong Good. And Glaurung really plays on that, right? Don't tarry to try to rescue the elf maiden, for if you do, then never again will you see Morwen, and never at all will you see Neonor, and they will curse you. So what does he do? Dun, da, da, charges back to Dor Loman. Oh my goodness, yes, I must save my kinsmen. Nothing wrong with that, right? So, I mean, that's one thing to notice. What Glaurung does to him there is not pervert him into doing something wicked, right? Plays upon not just his, his weaknesses, but his good desires. Um, remember the compliment that Glaurung gives him? When Turin keeps trying to kill him, and, and Glaurung, you know, he stabs at him again, and Glaurung reels back and says, Nay, at least thou art valiant, Right? And it's, but it's, it's exactly his valor that he's going to, oh, yes, Tori, no, no, you single, if you go running off right now, real fast, you could probably, like, save the whole kingdom of Dorloman, you know, because it's you. And he's like, yes, you're, I will go save them. And, and, of course, this is misguided. And it's misguided in the same way that he ended up bringing about the downfall of, of Nargothrond. Mr. Like, oh, nobody can stand against me. I am the Mormigil. What, hide like pansies and shoot at people with arrows? No, that's not how the elves of Nargothron play anymore now that Turin's here. No, 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 we're going to build a bridge. We're going to, remember Nargothron was supposed to be one of the secret kingdoms. It and Gondolin were the two, you know, Omo came to them in the vision and said, make a secret strong place. That's what Nargothron had always been. People knew, unlike Gondolin, people knew like the region of the continent that Nargothron was in, but nobody knew where its doors were. Nobody could get close to it. Remember Baron coming in and holding up, like he knows that the elves are seeing, he can't see them, right? But he's walking through the region, holding up the ring of bar here saying, hi, elves that I know are there looking at me. I don't know where I'm going, but please capture me and take me to Finrod because I want to talk to him, right? I mean, <laughs> nobody knows where it is. Whereas Turin's like, yeah, let's like, you know, let's put up some signposts. Let's get ourselves a big marquee. Like, welcome to Gondolin. Now stay out or we'll kick your butt. This is the new attitude of, Gon- of, of, of Nargothron. Sorry, not, not Gondolin. Uh, they have a different policy, which we'll be looking at in a few minutes. But um, anyway... It- <laughs> See, it's the same thing. The same thing which caused the downfall of Nargothron is now also contributing to this tragic mistake that he's making. Not to do what he clearly should do, which is pursue and rescue Finduilas and instead go herring out after Dorloman, where his family isn't even anymore and hasn't been for a long time. It's entirely useless. And the irony is, when he gets there, he does do a valiant thing. Right? He slays the leader of the Easterlings who is ruling in, in Hador's house you know, and, 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 and tyrannizing over the people. But it's not even any good. Right? Everyone's like, okay, thank, thank you for making things worse around here. Now please leave for crying out loud. Right? He doesn't do anybody any good, even through his acts of valor. So... So that's kind of sad. But again, we can, see, we can begin to see that, like, that the pattern. What are the things that are, that are, that are actuating Tour in here? Yeah, yeah, Brittany? Um, I was going to say, you also think that you can hide from the Oh, yeah. 
Good. Yeah, the changing of the names is obviously a really important thing. I mean, because we see how important names are, and he has so many. But I think you bring up the really important point. He has so many because he keeps changing them. Um, There are some people who have lots of names because other people call them by many different names. Um, Turin is the only one that we see who keeps renaming himself and explicitly to disguise himself. You you revealed my... He gets really ticked off at Gwyndor, right? You revealed my true name and set my doom upon me. And Gwyndor is like, dude, you are fooling yourself in a serious way. That Your doom isn't in your name. Marta? What was struck me most about Turin is that... He, um, you know, he had a, a good thing going for him at Doriath. You know, the uh, Thinkle was like, oh, I think I use the sun. I'd like it very much. And he's like, no, I'm going to leave. And he leaves, and he, because he had, things went down, and that's why he left. But he, he could have returned. And he yeah, yeah. He decided to become the leader of first, like, some wanderers, and then he went to Nagathron. He was like, I'll be a leader there for a while. And then he went to another place, and we was a leader there. And he had a new name every time he switched locations. Yeah. Like, he, he could have been king of so many different areas, and he ended up being... Nothing. Yeah, yeah. That is, I mean, it's one of the tragedies of Turin's situation. He clearly is one of the, I mean, is a a wonderful leader or has the potential to be a wonderful leader. Um, Certainly a strong leader. Um, And the times when he, the times when he gets names that he doesn't give himself tend to be better times when he's doing the kind of thing that he can do. Like, you know, when, when the region becomes known as the, the land of the helm and the bow, right? When he and Beleg are, are, are you know, are, are, are oppressing the orcs uh, in the greater Amon-Ruth region, right? Um, and even when, he's, even when he's the Mormigil in Nargothrond, he's doing good things. Now, he gets, uh, you know, he, he becomes, he misapplies things. Uh, but if, in his, in exerting his power, in doing, in, fighting in battle against Morgoth. He's fulfilling his destiny. He's doing his thing. This is clearly what he's for. He's just like his dad, Hurin, and the, you know, the line that he comes from. Um, but he always, he always messes it up. That, that first mistake that he made, Hurin makes so many, I'm always hesitant to say the first because I for fear I'm forgetting one, but uh, the leaving of Doriath is a big deal. And that shows really clearly his own pride. Um, hard you are, Turin, and stubborn, Beleg tells him. But it's more than just stubbornness. He was attacked, kills the elephant, well, sort of in self-defense. Uh, I don't know exactly what the charge would be uh, against him for the death of Saros. Right, Saros am- ambushes him in the woods, so if he killed him, it would be self-defense, but he doesn't exactly kill him, right? He overcomes him, takes his armor, strips him naked, and makes him run through the woods, at which point he dies uh, by an accident, which Turin didn't plan, and so it's a little awkward. But, um, uh, but anyway, he's acquitted for this. You know, and... But yet he calls himself, so he's acquitted. They say, you know, come back. You've been acquitted. Nobody blames you. Everything's fine. Come back to Doriath. And instead, not only does he not go, but then he names himself the wronged, right? Nathan, the wronged. You're not wronged? No one wronged you. Or like, okay, I mean, that guy insulted you, but you got him back. Plenty. I mean, with interest. I mean, even just, I mean, the initial reaction 
of, I mean, I love the disc, how he is grievously wounded uh, with a drink. I mean, he just takes a huge, you know, a golden chalice and smashes his teeth in across the table. Like, okay, like, lesson learned already. And then the next day, lesson learned much, much more. Okay, but he's not really been very grievously wronged. But great wrong comes of his reaction to the situation and the way in which he stands upon his dignity. He won't go back under those circumstances. Um, couple quick things that I want. I, since I, I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm in an, an Aristotelian mood today, another Greek term uh, from Aristotle's tragedies, that is his, um, one of the things which happens in a tragedy uh, very frequently is the mo- that moment of recognition, uh, which Arist- with the Greek word uh, for which is a very cool one, anagnorisis. Um, it's the moment when the moment when, when Oedipus finally realizes the full truth and runs off stage to gouge out his eyes, right? The moment uh, when, which Jocasta's already had, which leads her to hang herself, right? When all, suddenly the full realization of the horribleness comes crashing in on them. Macbeth has his little anagnorisis moment, right? When Macduff says, I was from my mother's womb untimely ripped, and he's like, oh, crap, there's an, another moment of anagnorisis there realizing that everything is coming crashing down around him. There are several really uh, crucial moments of anagnorisis uh, in Turin's story. The first one, and for my money the worst, as I've already said, is that moment when the lightning flashes and he recognizes Beleg dead at his feet, right, and realizes what he did there, and he is stricken sort of temporarily crazy by this and not recovered for a long time. Um, Near the end, Neonor gets her moment of anagnorisis, right? When the amnesia is taken away and she remembers all the days of her life and recognizes what happens, her reaction, uh, her response to this moment of anagnorisis is, I think, really remarkable and really beautiful. When she discovers that her beloved husband and the father of her unborn child is, in fact, her brother, how does she respond? Remember what she says? I think we quoted it last time. But it's worth re-quoting. Aaron? Yes. Farewell, oh, twice beloved. She doesn't... I mean, she gets upset. But, I mean, she kills herself soon after. But even the spirit in which she kills herself is different. It's not like Jocasta, for instance running off stage and going to hang herself in her room, or Oedipus uh, rushing off to gouge out his eyes. Um, Farewell, O twice beloved. She doesn't look back in horror upon what has happened. Her primary thoughts are not of horror at, oh my gosh, this was my brother. You know, I am carrying this incestuous baby in my womb, which Glaurung is trying to twist for her, Right? the worst of his deeds you shall feel within yourself, right? Oh, it's horrible. <laughs> That's, yeah, yeah. Um, it's terrible, but this is not her reaction, right? Her reaction is, I, you know, you are my husband. I have loved you. I still love you. I love now, you know, now that I remember the former love I had for you as well, farewell, O twice beloved, this sort of recognition. 
not reconciliation to what, to you know, to the incest or to the situation. But um, I said it's a, it's a it's a remarkable reaction. And then, of course, most horribly, Huron's final moment of anagnorisis. When does it come? Huron's final complete anagnorisis. Brandir overhears stuff, right? And like tries to do the anagnorisis and tells him everything. Oh, yeah, so I heard Gwarong say, Neonor, that was Neonor, your sister, and everything, and it's all horrible. And Turin doesn't believe him, right? He doesn't have it then. He's still, although that's the moment when he hears the feet of his doom creeping up behind him, he still is resisting. When does it happen? The anagnorisis. Jordan? Talks to his sword, he says, Hail good thing. The Lord of loyalty dost that now thou know, save the hand that wieldeth thee. From no blood wilt thou shrink. Wilt thou therefore take two and two a mow, wilt thou slay me swiftly? And the blade wings and from the blade wing a cold voice answered. Yea, I will drink thy blood gladly, so that I may forget the blood of Balak my master, and the blood of Brandir slain unjustly. I will slay thee swiftly. Yeah, Turin's suicide is very different too, right? Turin's suicide, he, it's almost like he doesn't commit suicide as much as execute himself. We wanted him, or perhaps we wanted, or I suggested that perhaps we should want him to be smacking himself on the forehead more over the course of his life. Well, he's doing it now with interest, right? He, he has this little, I mean, it's like he is asking the sword, which has witnessed everything, from the beginning of his checkered career, uh, or near the beginning of it, uh, to sit in judgment over him, right? Will you slay me? I, I have the uh, a conviction that I merit death. Do you agree, Gurthang? And the sword says, yes, yes, I will slay you, and, 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 and gives the indictments, right? For, so that I might forget the blood of my master Beleg, and of Brandir slain unjustly. That seems, compared to the other things, Turin's done a small thing. But it's, it's not a small thing. And Gorthang reminds me, you just committed murder back there of an innocent person who was accusing you justly and speaking the truth. That was, that was pretty bad. That was, I mean, that was certainly worse than what happened to Sayeros, for instance. Right, Eve? Well, I'd resist that. There's a, there's, they're cursed as a consequence of it. They, yeah. I, consequence is what I would go with more. They experience the consequences of their action. Yeah. Uh, and we can see that pattern working out in the curse. That is, they, after the kinslaying, the consequences of that action is division among them and treachery among them and their own sorrow and their own suffering. What you did to the Teleri, what you put in motion by turning against your fellow elves and, and killing them unjustly is now going to happen. Like you've opened up that can of worms and, and, and now that's, you know, that's where you're going to be living. Um, so it's con- and then finally, it's removed by mercy. There's no atoning act that we see. Um, just an act of mercy. 
just an act of forgiveness, an act of grace. Both, remember, both on the part of the Valar and on the part of the Teleri. The Teleri forgive the Noldor and accept them back into Valinor at the very end. Um, I agree, therefore, that the, the, the discussion that, the brief discussion, that Turin has with his sword is very important. But I think that's sort of the final confirmation. It's, it's sort of the final judgment there. The recognition has already happened. The anagnosis has already happened. It comes when he meets Mablung. Remember, Mablung gets upset about it, and he says, you know, thus have I slain with my tidings one that I loved. When Mablung confirms independently, oh, yeah, you know, uh, Neonor is somewhere around here. We lost her. We've been looking for her. But we're sure she's somewhere in this region, probably, you know, lost her memory or something, right? Then Turin recognizes that Glarung spoke the truth and Brandir spoke the truth. Now, ready for the cool moment? Does anyone remember what Turin says when Mablung tells him? This only was wanting. This only was wanting. Go on. Now comes the night. Thank you. Remember the Mirnaithor Nordiad and his dad? Day is come again. The night is passing. And then the horrible defeat. But still, Hurin standing there saying, Day shall come again. And now his son's story ending with Turin saying, Now comes the night. Oh, that's horrible. <laughs> that's really horrible. But it's not over yet. Hurin gets set free and comes down because he knows exactly where his kid's tombstone has been erected and finds Morwen sitting there. Uh, Morwen, this aged, shrunken version of herself, but he can still recognize her in her eyes. And her last words, how did he find her? If you know, tell me. And Hurin says nothing. And they never speak again. And in the morning, she's dead. And he buries her there and carves her name onto the same tombstone as their two kids. And what do we know about their gravestone? What's the prophecy of Tol Morwen? It was never defiled with him again. Of all of the grave sites, this is the big one. This is the one that never perishes. Fingolfins, that's pretty cool. Finrods, that's pretty cool. Glorfindels in the fall of Gondolin, that's pretty cool too. Until the world is changed, which for Glorfindel is not really that very long. But anyway, it's at the end, we know, we see in the War of Wrath, most of Beleriand sinks beneath the sea. The whole continent shifts and falls and is destroyed. And all of those other sites sink beneath the waves, except for Tol Morwen. In the middle of the ocean, you will still see, if you can find it, an island with the gravestone of the children of Hurin and of Morwen on it, it says. Even when the land changes, there still will stand undefiled. The grave, the tomb of the hapless, as they are called. Hurin, his last words about Morwen, his wife? What does he look down at her and say, Marta? He says she was not conquered. She was not conquered. He says, as she's dead now, right? She was not conquered, he says. Um, this 
won't change things completely or make you in retrospect feel that the story of the children of Huron uh, is a very cheerful and happy story in the end. Uh, but I do want to uh, I do want to cite Alison Fishbach here, who is writing her thesis on uh, this this year on death, basically death in Tolkien. And uh, in her thesis, Alison makes a wonderful point about the end of this story, and especially about that line. Uh, Alison very aptly recalls, remember the conversation that Hurin and Morgoth have in the first place when Morgoth is uh, inflicting his curse upon Hurin. This is on page 197, the very bottom of 196. Therefore, Hurin was brought before Morgoth, for Morgoth knew that he had the friendship of the king of Gondolin, but Hurin defied him and mocked him. Then Hurin cursed then Morgoth cursed Hurin and Morwen and their offspring and set a doom upon them of darkness and sorrow. And taking Hurin from prison, he set him in a chair of stone upon a high place of Thangarodron. There he was bound by the power of Morgoth and Morgoth standing beside him cursed him again and said, sit now there and look out upon the lands where evil and despair shall come upon, the, shall come upon those whom thou lovest. Thou hast dared to mock me and to question the power of Melkor, master of the fates of Arda. Therefore, with my eyes thou shalt see, and with my ears thou shalt hear, and never shalt thou move from this place until all is fulfilled unto its bitter end. Um, the version of the curse that's given in the longer version in the, the recently released book, The Children of Hurin, um, Morgoth is, is even more emphatic than this and says that they, you will never, your family will never escape from my power. Because you, you've dared to defy me, you will never, you will never be able to escape. But they do escape. They all escape. Morgoth is fooling himself. He is not master of the fates of Arda. And there is one thing he can never control. One thing he can never influence, and that is the souls of men after death. They're gone. They've escaped. There is a way, an indirect way, and a way that one must be careful in applying, but there is a way in which, and they all died at the end, is a happy ending. Because all of them escape from the power of Morgoth completely and go where he cannot, much as he would want to, where he cannot possibly pursue them. And thus, his curse is though it lasts their whole lifetimes, short-lived. That's part of the gift of Iluvatar to men, you see. Isn't that a good point? See, tell Allison how brilliant her thesis is next time he's here. <laughs> now, uh, okay, we've got about 12 minutes uh, in which to discuss the fall of Thingol, the fall of Nargothrond and Eärendil. Ready? Now, uh, we've already seen Thingol having some problems and making his first big mistakes when he sends Baron off on the quest for the Silmaril in the first place. Uh, what do we see going wrong with Thingol at the end? What causes his death? Marta? He, um, he asked the dwarves to make to put the Cimarron in the necklace, and the dwarves were like, no, we're going to actually claim all of this. And he's like, no, you're not. And the dwarves are like, oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Well, remember how, how harshly and ungraciously he spoke to Baron when Baron came before him 
uh, and he is much ruder to the dwarves, right? There he is, and he is so blinded to, you know, uh, by his own sense of his superiority and how far he is above the dwarves uh, that he mocks them when he is unarmed, locked alone with them <laughs> in a room, right? How dare, dare ye of uncouth race, right? Uh, and, they, and of course, there's, there's, there's an irony there in the door. Remember what distinguishes Thingol? He, he gets a superlative. He's one of, the, one of the most blank of all of the children of Iluvatar. Do you remember what it is? Yes, he's the tallest. The tallest person ever to live. And then the dwarves cut him off at the ankles, and down he goes. <laughs> <laughs> so there's... This, but, but, I mean, he's, like, literally above them. I mean, he's probably five feet taller than they are. Uh, but, uh, but, of course, they bring him down. Um, his pride gets way out of control. And, Marta, what leads up to his putting of the Silmaril in the necklace? What's he doing with himself prior to that? How does he come up with this idea? He's just kind of sitting in fascination. Yeah, like, exactly. His, his occupation, most of the time, is just sitting there and staring at the Silmarils. Ooh. Wow, this thing is... Uh, he, he, he's becoming obsessed with it and beginning to love it with a greedy love. Now, of course, the dwarves' love is greedy too. It's not that they are, uh, you know, pardonable in what they do. What they do is still wrong, but, but Thingol was making some real mistakes. Uh, the war that comes of this between the, 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 the dwarves and the elves, you'll remember that one passage where it says, and it is not been forgotten, right? Um, you will come across a reference to that uh, in The Hobbit. This is uh, the, when Thorin and the other dwarves are taken captive by the elven king uh, in Mirkwood. Uh, this moment is recalled it was uh, it's talking about the, 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 the caves of the king of Mirkwood, the caves which are kind of shockingly like Menegroth, actually. So to the cave they dragged Thorin, not too gently, for they did not love dwarves and thought he was an enemy. In ancient days they had had wars with some of the dwarves, whom they accused of stealing their treasure. It is only fair to say that the dwarves gave a different account and said that they only took what was their due, for the elf king had bargained with them to shape his raw gold and silver and had afterwards refused to give them their pay. It is only fair to say that the dwarves tell a different story. Now, of course, it's tempting to read the story in the Silmarillion because this is, this is the story that is being alluded to here and say, oh, okay, so we see, really, it was the dwarves who were in the wrong because how they acted was really bad. But remember, this is, this is the elf side of the story that we're reading. Don't forget, were we reading, you know, the comparable, some kind of history of the first stage by the dwarves? Not that we ever would because they wouldn't show it to us if they wrote it. Uh, but anyway, uh, if we were reading that, presumably this story would sound, would sound very different. It's one thing that I've been really noticing this time through the Silmarillion, sort of being reminded in several places of moments where we can really see, remember that this is from the point of view of the elves, and Tolkien is pretty consistent about that in staying within not only the scope of knowledge, but also within the point of view and ad- ad- adapted to some of the assumptions of the elves. Um, what, uh, what is Baron and Luthien's cause of death? The second cause of death? How do they die? Why do they die? I have to say, it's a good way to go. Yeah, Kelly? 
Does it have to do with the fact that the beauty of the Silmaril around Luthien's neck was too bright and they sort of burned out? Yeah. The time? Yeah. Yeah, excess of bliss and beauty. We're too awesome for this world. Exactly. Yeah, too much, too much beauty and awesomeness uh, for Middle Earth. That's that's what was that's what they that's what the coroner put on the death certificate of Baron and Luthien. Excess of bliss and beauty. Tragic case. Um, sad, sadly, not an epidemic. But uh, but anyway, what what does cause there? Now, and, and here I just want to. I want to emphasize this for just a moment because this is going to be important. Uh, this is going to be important certainly when we're thinking about the Numenorians, but also it's going to come up again later on. Mortals can't take more than a certain level of worldly bliss. Too much glory, too much beauty, too much joy is more than they can take. It shortens their lives. Again, it's a good way to go, but it shortens their lives. They can't handle it because they're not designed to handle it. Because remember, that's the fundamental difference between the elves and the men is that the men are not designed. They're designed only temporarily for this world. This world is not their ultimate home. And when they have what would appear to be perfect bliss, perfect happiness, perfect joy, it burns them out and actually ends up sending them sooner to, the, to their real home, wherever that is, that place which the elves know not. Um, okay, good. Turgon. We're moving. We're on the move here. Uh, Turgon's fall is completed. We yeah, have, again, again emphasized, as, as has been before, the greatness of Gondolin. Gondolin of the seven names got seven names, like, spontaneously given to it. It's not, you know, changing its own names, boy. It's, you know, it's just a sign of its, of its greatness. What does Turgon do wrong? As we rather suspected he would. Um, he doesn't listen to Tour, who was um, a messenger from Ulmo, saying that they should leave. Right. By which, and by doing which, he is therefore ignoring Ulmo twice. Because he's also ignoring what Ulmo told him the first time. Which was... Love not too well the works of your own hands. And forget not that the true hope of the Noldor cometh from the west, or lies in the west and cometh over the sea. Right? Durgan loves too well the works of his own hands. What, what's his rationale for saying, thank you, Omo, really? That was a generous, a generous uh, 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 you know, token on your part. I, I appreciate your warning. It was very well-intentioned. But no thanks. I think we're good. Why does he think they're good? Does he think Olmo's wrong? Oh, no. We're not going to be attacked. We kind of does think that. We are so secret. How could anybody ever find us? I can't see any way anyone could ever find us. And he believes Gondolin is so strong that nobody could ever take it. Not even, not even a Vala if he came. You know, like if there were one who, like, wanted to attack them or something, theoretically. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, so he, he, he loves too well the works of his own hands. He has pride as well, though it's a different kind of pride from Thingol's. How does he die? I said before in one of the recorded classes that to pay attention to his death is it's a, it's a very 
emblematic death that he dies? What's his cause of death? Jordan, what's his cause of death? Um, uh, yeah, no, it's not. It's not he, Tuar kills Maeguin, and no, Ecthelion kills Gothmog. Okay, Ecthelion, one of the captains, and, and who also dies. One thing you'll notice, by the way, we see several cases of Balrogs being killed. The person who kills the Balrog never survives. There's never been a single instance in Tolkien's recorded history of... Huh? He, he dies. Yeah, <laughs> still still dies. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, no, exactly, exactly. Um, Ecthelion kills Gothmog, captain of the Balrogs, and dies. Gorfindel, on the way out, casts the Balrog down, but also dies. Also notice that of the three Balrogs we see perish by name, you know, that we, we actually see, two of them seem to die by plummeting to their deaths, kind of like something without wings. Just thought I'd point out in passing. Anyway, uh, So, Gondolin falls. When does it fall? When does it fall? What's the occasion of the fall of Gondolin? What's happening when Gondolin falls? What's everybody doing when the armies of Morgoth sweep in over the mountains? Nick? They have a festival. There's a festival going on, wouldn't you know? Yeah. Yeah. I know. You'd think, exactly. You'd think they'd stop holding festivals. Right, I understand. Except, except this isn't the last one. We'll see, we'll see more festivals later on. I know everyone's getting worried because we're having our big festival this weekend, right? Uh, let's, let's, hope, let's, hope, let's hope for the best. Um, Kurgan, how does he die? He is up in his tower. And the tower is knocked over and great is the ruin of its fall and the ruin of Turgon in its fall. Turgon goes down with the ship. Well, the city, right? That is his, it's, it's not exactly like his own city kills him, but he trusted in the strength of his city and his city collapses around him. That's what happens uh, when you love too well the works of your hands, when you delude yourself into thinking that you're stronger than you are. Um, we have, in the fall of Gondolin, in, in very short space, some... Some themes arise that uh, that you know we should be recognizing. The place falls by treachery, of course, as we well we've had lots of heavy hinting that it was going to anyway. Uh, that we knew that 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 Maeglin was no good to start with. Um, but just as in the in the near Nithernoidiad, we had the treachery of Oldor the Accursed, which was then immediately redressed by the self-sacrifice of the men of Dor Loman. So here we have the treachery of Maeglin, the most infamous of treacheries in all of the First Age, that is then immediately, not atoned for exactly, but, uh, but compensated for by the self-sacrifice of golden-haired Gorfindel, who sacrifices his life so that the remnant of Gondolin can escape. Um, and it, once again, we have that sort of that, that pairing, that that juxtaposition. Debating whether or not to try to do Arendo in 30 seconds, but I think I shan't. Um, the last thing I will point out, though, 
before we leave. When does Ayarendo arrive in Valinor? At a time of festival. Remember, he comes in and he walks through Tyrion and he's like, okay, I'm in the blessed realm, but this is kind of an anticlimactic letdown. There's nobody here. And he's like, what, has there been like a plague in the blessed land and everyone's dead? It's like the whole place is abandoned. He's actually turning around and going back to the ship. He's like, well, that was disappointing. <laughs> There's nobody here. Because they're all at festival. And then Aonwe, the herald, appears. Go back and reread the speech of Aonwe, the herald, to Aarendel when he lands. And think about all those times of festival. And all of the things that have happened in a time of festival. And now we get Aarendel's arrival. Also, at a time of festival. Just like Morgoth and Ungoliant, except different. Um, have a good weekend. Enjoy the festival. How certain? I'm pretty confident, really. All right. Next time we will look at Aarendo and then spend most of the rest of the class examining the causes of the downfall of Numenor and the significance of Iluvatar's response to their crimes. So make sure to read the Akala Baith for the next class. Thanks for listening. And Godspeed.